So Father, we ask that you just be with us. Lord, I, I thank you that we do have your word to get to know you, uh, but it also reveals things about us. And so this morning as we study through chapter 15 and the first part of it, that you would just continue to reveal to all of us in this room just exactly who you are and what your intentions are, Lord, and what you do for us. And so I just pray that there would be no distractions amongst us, that we would not be distractions ourselves. Lord, that if there's anything in our hearts and our minds that is overwhelming us, that's giving us anxiety, Lord, anything that is just consuming us, Lord, I pray that you would just give us a peace right now to be able to hear your words. And so we just lift this up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Luke chapter 15. We got more Bibles, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Luke chapter 15, we are getting into some of the parables with Jesus, but we had just finished chapter 14 where Jesus was giving us some more parables, um, but he was encouraging the disciples, and I want to say encouraging, but challenging the disciples and following him and telling the disciples, look, like if you want to follow me, it's not going to be easy, okay? Now, don't mistake when I say that it's not easy with it not being worth it. Okay, because usually anything in life that you want that is valuable, that is good, it's worth something, right? It has value. It's there's something that you have to do to give up to earn it, right? And so the same thing goes with Jesus that when it comes to following him and being a disciple, it's not it's not easy, but it's oh so worth it. And so Jesus challenges anyone that wants to follow him, anyone that wants to be a disciple. That, look, if you want to follow me, that you have to do this. You have to bear your cross. We see this in verse 27, chapter 14. And you have to come after me. That's what he says. And remember, we talked about the cross is not just, you know, a necklace. It's not just an ornament. It is a, a tool, a device to kill. And it was used to kill in such a horrendous and horrible way. Right? One of the worst ways to die. And so when Jesus says to take up your cross, it means to deny yourself, right? Like, I will die to myself so that Christ can be everything. So take up your cross and follow him. And he says, he goes on, he gives a couple of stories about how you should count the cost before you start something, right? Don't just go into it all gung-ho and naive. No, Jesus wants you to be very aware of that when you follow him, that there is a cost that's associated to it. Right? Just like you would if you were to build something or renovate. I think that was one of the examples we use. Like you need to know how much time, how much effort, and how much cost it's going to be. Because if you go into it naive, well, you know, a day in, you're going to realize, I don't have the money, I don't have the time, and I don't have the efforts to do this. And Jesus wants you to make a clear and conscious decision when you follow him, and not just an emotional decision. I don't know, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed. You guys know what an altar call is? Has ever been to a church or an event or something where they present the gospel and then they have you, you know, raise your hand or stand up or repeat after me? Now, I don't want to put those down, okay? That's not my intent right now. But if you've ever noticed, we've never done that. Have you guys noticed that? We've never done an altar call. But have we shared the gospel? 100%. We share the gospel all the time. And the reason behind that is because I don't ever, or we don't ever want it to be a situation where you follow Jesus because you're so full of emotions and you're so full of someone directing you and, and leading you and pushing you to do something. Where in actuality, what the scripture says is that if you have faith and you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again for your sins, well, then you're saved. 
right? It's not, a, it's not so much a matter of raising hand or standing up or repeating a prayer, although I, I guess that could be part of it, but we don't want false conversions. And the same thing, Jesus doesn't want false conversions. He doesn't want people thinking that they're following him when they're actually not ready to follow him. And remember the disciples, there was a few disciples that asked Jesus to follow him, and Jesus said, said, okay, if you want to follow me, you need to go get rid of all your money, right? Go give it to the poor. You guys remember that, the rich young ruler? And what did he say? Well, I don't think he said anything, but he just, he, he went away sad because he, he had so much stuff, right? He didn't want to give it away. He wasn't ready to follow Jesus because he wasn't ready to give up the things of this world, right? Then there was another one that said, you know, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, well, if you want to follow me, you know, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. You know, he says the foxes have holes and the birds there have nests. They have a home. Jesus is like, this isn't my home. It's not going to be easy. We don't know what that guy did, but more than likely he wasn't ready to follow Jesus. Then you get the third guy who wanted to follow Jesus, and he said, wait, before I come and follow you, let me go bury my dad. And then Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, right? Essentially what was happening in that situation is the man's father wasn't really dead yet. And it was a matter of just waiting until he died. It could have been a day. It could have been 10 years. They didn't know, right? And Jesus is saying, look, at this point, if you want to commit in following me, it's not about waiting, right? It's about doing it now. And so he wants people to count the costs and be aware of when you follow him, it has to be your own conscious decision, right? Nobody to force you, nobody to guilt you. You know, it has to be of your own will, and so Jesus gives these examples here to count the costs and leaving all to follow him. And he says that in verse 33 at the end of the chapter. He says, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now remember, we talked about this because you might be hearing this for the first time. You might be thinking, I have to give up everything to follow him. Like you, you, you know like the um, scale? Like if you put something on a scale on this end and one on this end, if it's the same weight, then they're going to balance out. I think sometimes we think that giving up all is worth way more than actually following Jesus. Like we think that doesn't balance out, that it's not a good, a good deal. But what we fail to realize is that the value of following Jesus is way greater than anything that we ever have to give up, right? And I really don't have to give up much. But there are things that we do have to give up in order to follow Christ. And Jesus makes this bold claim because we talked about this too he can do it because he's worthy of it right he's the creator he is the god of this universe he's holy he's perfect and he's just this is his requirement right now that doesn't mean that god wants us to live a miserable life that's you know gloomy and depressing no like in christ it's it's freeing it's joyous it's happy it's peaceful it's all these things that we think in the world brings us, but Jesus says, get rid of those. Those are false. Those are fake. And actually find what you really want in me. And it's, it's the greatest deal you could ever make. Right? It costs us nothing when it costs Jesus everything. So we get into chapter 15 now, where Jesus is going to give us three parables. Okay? For, so this week, we're only going to be covering the first two. We get the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And it's important that when we read this, we read this in context. Because this specific parable, the parable of the lost sheep, was, 
grossly taken out of context all throughout 2020. And I'm not going to get into the details of like where I saw it and how I saw it, but it was one of those parables that I saw so many times it was just taken out of context. And it had nothing to do with the intent of what Jesus had for it. And so in verse 1, let's go ahead and read it. We'll read 1 through 10 and then we'll come back. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Right? Jesus has been preaching nonstop. And as he's doing this, people are drawing near. It says, The Pharisees and the scribes, they complained saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus, right? Jesus is God incarnate. He's perfect in every single way. There's nothing that anyone could find on him that was wrong, that was sinful. But he comes to save sinners, the opposite of who he is, right? Not in a perfect sense but the opposite in the sense of that we ourselves are sinners. We are not perfect. We're fallen, right? And he's the only one who has the credentials to condemn sinners, and yet he's the one who chooses to come here and to pardon us as sinners, right? He's the only one that has the ability to say, this is what you deserve, and this is what you're getting, right? But he says, no, this is what you deserve, and this is what you're getting, and he says, this is, you're getting me. You're getting grace. You're getting favor. You're getting love. Even though you, you don't deserve it, I'm giving it to you. And so he comes to this world to call the lost to be found, right? The sick to be healed, right? The dead to be alive. And he comes to save the sinners. That's what Jesus came to do, to call us to faith and repentance. And we're going to talk about that a little bit as we move forward What's the difference between faith and repentance? Okay, I'm not going to talk about it now, but we'll get into that. Because here we see over and over again that he calls those to repent. Those sinners who repent, it says heaven rejoices, right? Heaven rejoices. So in verse 1, it says all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. So what are these types of people, tax collectors and sinners? Are Are they good people or bad people if we're trying to group them into good and bad? Middle class. No, like, like, like they're not the typical, they're, they're the bad, they're the ones, they're the outcasts, right? They're the ones that like nobody would ever expect for Jesus to draw near to, right? Here is the Messiah, here is God. You think he would go to, you know, like the elite, the good people, the, uh, let's just say like the Pharisees, right? The, the overly religious, right? The religious who didn't even know and see Jesus right in front of them. 
So here's the difference between tax collectors and sinners and who they are. Tax collectors were Jews, okay? They were Israelites. And what they did is they collected taxes. It's pretty cool, right? No, but what they did is they were employed by Romans, right? Remember, because they were under Roman rule. You guys know this, correct? The Jews were under Roman rule. And at that time, the Romans would take the taxes from the Jews, but they needed somebody to do that, somebody to implement that. And so that's who the tax collectors were. They actually used some of the Jews to be those tax collectors. Now, the rest of the Jews who were not tax collectors did not like the tax collectors, even though they were the Jews themselves, because they felt like they were traitors. And what they would also do is that the tax collectors were to get a minimum amount from the people. But the Romans never put a cap on it. They never put, you know, you can't take more than this. So let's say, hypothetically, that if you're a Jew, you owe the Romans 5% of your wages, right? What a tax collector would do would be like, hey, you actually owe 8%. And what the tax collector would do is they would take the 8%, they would give 5% back to the Romans, which they asked for, and the tax collector would keep the rest of that, which is 3%, right? So they would overtax, and they would, and they would become rich. They would make a lot of money. And... Obviously, as a fellow Jew, wouldn't that make you mad if you were living in that time? Yeah, so the tax collectors were hated. Nobody liked them, right? Nobody liked them. That's, that's the point we got to get at today. But does Jesus outcast them? Does Jesus push them aside and say, you're a bunch of jerks, you're greedy, you're prideful, like you, no. Then, not only do the tax collectors draw near to Jesus, but you also have sinners, right? And a sinner here would be, I guess, it could be a general statement of how we would call sinners, like we're all sinners, but it was a little bit more specific here in this sense because it was looked upon as people who didn't observe religious things. You know, like they would have to wash their hands before they would go in the synagogue. They would have to do certain types of rituals. And so the Pharisees would look at people who didn't adhere to these rules as sinners. And they had this this little law, this little saying amongst them as Pharisees that said, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him the law. So they had this, this rule that was like, okay, for these sinners, for these people who don't adhere to these religious rules, don't even hang out with them. Not even to the extent of sharing the law, or in our sense, the gospel with them. Isn't that kind of absurd? It is. And so they took it way too far. So we got these, these tax collectors, these sinners, and yet it says that they drew near to Jesus. Why do you think they're drawing near to Jesus? Don't you think it's the same reason that we draw near to Jesus? What, what is the verse where it says, it's your kindness that leads us to what? Repentance. It's, it's the kindness of Christ that, that draws us near to him. It's his love, it's his mercy. Coupled with what they're hearing, the truth and his authority, they're like, this, this is what we want, where they're craving it. Everyone else in the world looks down upon them. Everyone else in the world considers them outcasts and gross and hates them. Yet here's this man who comes with this message saying that God loves them and God can save them. So they draw near to him, right? In the same sense as why we want to draw near to Christ. And there's a promise given to us in James chapter 4, verse 8. It says, if you draw near to God, what happens? 
he'll draw near to you. Right? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's not a matter of draw near to God and he'll save you. It's not a matter of draw near to God and he'll forgive you. All those, those things are true and they can happen. But James gives us a promise and says, draw near to God and he draws near to you. And he says that because what we have with our God is a relationship, right? It's, it's a real thing that I, if I want to draw near to God, then he will also draw near to me. It's an intimacy that we have between man and God. And it only can happen because Jesus reconciled that gap that, that was between man and God. And because Jesus died for my sins, it now brings me together again with God. And if I draw near to him, he will draw near to me. We can have a close and intimate fellowship and relationship with God. But here's the thing, because you might th- think, how does that even happen? I've tried, like, it just doesn't seem like God's there. I wish like he would just walk through the door, yada, yada, yada. But James is very clear, like, sometimes it, it starts with, with you. The initiation starts with God when it comes to salvation. Like, it's all him. If he didn't do what he did, and we'll talk about this as we get further, we would still be dead in our sins. It says that Christ died for us when we were ungodly, when we were sinners. Like, we weren't out there, like, searching for God. Does this make sense? That it was all the initiative of, of God to do what he did. But now when we're born again, like it does take effort on our part. You guys know that, right? Like there is a part in your life where you have to draw near to him. Like God doesn't walk away, doesn't move away. He's a patient God who's, who's gentle and kind. But he'll wait for you and he'll wait and he'll wait. And he says, if you draw near to me, then I promise I'll draw near to you. And part of your effort is doing that. And the way that we can draw near to him is, is multiple different ways. It's getting rid of things, right? It's laying things down, like he asked his disciples. If you want to follow me, well, you got to get rid of these things. They're consuming you. Whether it's your time or your heart, you got to get rid of them. Maybe you need to start praying to him. Or even something as simple as reading his, the Bible, right? His word. Like God has spoken to you, and you have a chance to either listen to it and hear from him or not. And that's your prerogative. That's your initiative. That's your will, right? So if you think that, you know, God doesn't do anything, well, remember, he's a gentleman, and he's waiting for you to take initiative on these things to draw near to him. And his promise coupled with that is that he draws near to us. So these sinners, tax collectors, they draw near to Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say. And as they're doing this, you have these self-righteous people who are standing outside of this, they see this happening, and, and do you think they're like, oh, that's awesome, sinners are coming to Jesus? No, because no, they have the wrong heart, right? They're selfish, they're prideful, they're greedy. Anything that is good apart from them, they don't like. And so what do they start to do? What do we do when we're selfish and prideful and greedy? And, and something good happens to someone else. Right? We see you know, a post on social media that so-and-so did this, and this happened to them, and they got this achievement. Can we be happy for them sometimes? Sure. Sometimes we're not, because we're selfish, and we're prideful, and we're greedy. And so these self-righteous Pharisees and scribes, it says in verse 2 that they complained. Right? I think we do the same sometimes, maybe not out loud. Like, oh, gosh, Becky just won another award again. She's such a know-it-all. Right? Like, that's, that's what we do. 
rather than being excited. And so when it comes to the spiritual sense of it, when it comes to the salvation, man, we should be super stoked when people come to Jesus, regardless of who they are. That we should be unlike the Pharisees, who they started to complain and they say, this man, speaking of Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Like, ew. How many of you guys have been to Atlanta or Philadelphia with us on a missions trip? Okay, great. So those two ministries, they're super interesting because they, they deal with the homeless. And, and majority of the time, they're homeless because they're addicted to drugs. And typically when that happens, they, their, their whole appearance changes. Their, their, uh, their health, their, um, what's the word for like cleanliness? Hygiene. Their hygiene is like, it, it's gross. Honestly, I'm, I'll just be honest with you. Especially in Philadelphia, for those of you that have gone to Philadelphia with us, it is one of the worst strips that you will see in all of America when it comes to drugs and, and homelessness. Okay? People with open sores, haven't showered in years. I mean, it's, it's bad, right? And you would think that to go in, 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 you would never, a majority of us would never go and eat with those types of people. Right? Like, oh, well, you know, they, they made their decision. That's what they want to do. They're gross. Like, I don't, I don't want them touching me. Right? They, they have diseases. They, have, they stink. They this, they that. Right? That's typically how we would see them and how we would view them. And the Pharisees and scribes are, in a sense, seeing these people in a spiritual way. That they're gross. That they're disgusting. And so when we go to Atlanta, when we go to Philly, like, we make it a point to touch them. Right? To, to touch them, to show them, like, you and I are the same. Right? To, to hug them, to shake their hand, to know their name, to look them in the eyes. That although a majority of people might see you as, as something other than you're not, we see you the way that God sees you. That he cares for you, that he loves you. Despite all this. And so Jesus is the same way with all of us as sinners. That he loves us and that he wants to eat with us. And that was a big thing in their culture, in their time, because eating with one another, it, it almost symbolized that you became one, right? Because they ate differently than we eat. So when we eat, it's, it's a lot different, right? Um, you guys probably don't even eat dinner with your family half the time throughout the week, right? You probably sit separately, you probably sit in front of the TV. I mean, our family's guilty of this too, right? But in this time, when they would eat, they would eat together, and it was a very intimate thing. And they would all share the same meal. Even now, today, we all have separate meals, right? And we're all picky about our food. Like, we don't want it touching. I don't want to eat greens. I don't want this. I don't want that. Like, they had all their food in the middle, and they would all put their hands in there, and they would all grab it and eat from it. And essentially what they thought was as they did this, you almost became one with the person, right? Because you're eating of the same thing, and it's, it's all going into your body. And so for them, it was as if Jesus is identifying as one of these people, right? That he's becoming one with them. And yet what Jesus is doing is that he's just showing them that he loves them, right? That, that they're not beyond saving, that they're not too gross or too sinful or whatever we may think. They're not the untouchables. And so, the, again, here the Pharisees and scribes, they're, they're complaining and I want to read this, this section of Scripture to you in Matthew chapter 9, 
verses 9 through 13, because I think this gives us a clear picture of why Jesus does all this, okay? Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose, and he followed him. You guys know the book of Matthew was written by who? Matthew, and Matthew was a tax collector, right? And I'm sure even at the beginning of you know, their discipleship program, that the other disciples were like, you really invited this guy? This guy's a tax collector, Jesus. But that's the point. It's like Jesus can save anyone, right? And he wants to save us, regardless of who we are. And he says to him, follow me. So Matthew arose and he followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I do not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't come to call the righteous because there are no righteous. And if you think that you're righteous, well, then you think you don't need to repent. But Jesus says, I, call, I come to call the sinners to repent. And those who are sick, those are the ones who need a doctor. Right? Essentially equating it to that. That if you're a sinner, then what do you, if, if you're sick, you need a doctor. And if you're a sinner, you need a, a Jesus, a Savior, who is Jesus. Yeah. If you're a sinner, you need a Savior. You need to be saved from your sin. And so that's what Jesus is doing, right? He's calling the sinners to repentance. And I think we need to be aware of that, you know, especially when it comes to church. You know, I think sometimes the expectation is when we come here that we're all, you know, good people, that we're all upstanding and righteous and holy. I think that's a wrong expectation that we should have upon ourselves and that we should have upon kids that come in here. There's been plenty of times where kids come in here and they start acting up, like Joe and Zach in the back, right? It was pretty bad. I had to call you out. You got kids who come in here and they'll start cussing, right? You got kids who come in here. We've had, we've had every kind of thing happen in here that I don't even want to go through. But what do we do? Do we kick them out? After a while, if they don't obey the rules, yeah, I will, right? But the point is, is we want, we want to... Not accept them because, you know, I don't want to accept you in the sense that what you're doing is okay, but I need to teach you what is right in the eyes of God, but I also need to love you where you're at, right? And I can't expect you to, to, to make yourself clean on your own. I can't expect you to make yourself good on your own. You can't do that either, right? So you come in here and, and you confess a sin, you do this, you do that. I mean, that's the expectation because you guys are fallen, right? And in that point, we don't kick you out of church, right? I think the Pharisees probably would have done that, but it would have been a self-righteous thing to do because they themselves were sinners. But yet we love, but we don't, I want to make sure that we understand that we don't love the sin, right? That if we do, if we're to show love, it's kind of like this. You guys remember on the retreat, I forget what was happening. Something was happening. I, ha I had to address something 
And you know, like when we show love and grace over and over and over again, the reason we do that is because that's what Christ did for us. But we should never take advantage of that love and grace and just continue on in doing what we're doing. You know, when it comes to something that, that we're doing that is wrong. And so Jesus loves us, and Jesus wants us to be saved. He came to save us. So he's eating, he's dining, he's becoming one with them, he loves them. And again, we got the Pharisees, the scribes who are complaining, and it says here that they are complaining that Jesus is receiving sinners. This word in the Greek, it means to take up, to welcome, right? So a kid comes in here who's, you know, not, you know, acting up, well, we're going to receive him and welcome him. Even though it might be awkward to some of us, no, we're going to receive him and welcome him or her, right? To love him. Because Christ can reach anyone, right? We receive and welcome anyone that walks through these doors. We've had many kids who come in here who have struggled with, with sexual identity, right? Many kids who claim to be gay or whatever claim they make, right? Now, what, what would we do? What would your parents expect, right? Like, what, I've had so many parents email me or call me or ask me before they even came to the church, is your youth group a good youth group? Are there kids in there that are good kids? Because I want my kid to find a group of kids who are also good so that, you know, obviously they don't want their kid to be acting a fool, right? And I'm like, what do you want me to tell you? You want me to tell you that these kids are angels? Like that they're good? No, they're not. Like I can't control them. Does, does this make sense? Like we got we to gotta show grace and love towards one another and understand that we're not all perfect. And so we receive because we want you to know the gospel, and the gospel then is transformative. The gospel then, once it's received, once you become alive, well, God can do an amazing work. And then there's that challenge of sanctification that, yeah, I do change my ways. I don't identify in these things of the world anymore. I don't, you know, curse anymore. I don't watch these things anymore, right? And it's not a matter of becoming good because, that's what I need to be. No, it's a matter of becoming good because you have the Spirit of God in you, and it's because He is good, right? And so there's going to be times where we're going to have to accept kids into this room who, you know, you think, well, they're not, they're not very churchy. They're not very Christian. <laughs> what do you want us to do? Kick them out? Not let them hear the gospel? No, we've, we need to accept them. Here's a story I want to read to you really quick. I got a few minutes. There was a guy named Bill. He had wild hair, wild hair uh, wore a t-shirt with holes in it, jeans, no shoes. Uh, this was his wardrobe for his entire four years of college. He was brilliant and very, very smart. And he became a Christian while attending college. And across from the street, from the, uh, across the street from the campus was a very well-dressed and conservative church. And they wanted to develop a ministry to the students but they weren't sure how to go about it. So one day, Bill, he decided to go there, and he walked in with no shoes. Just imagine Patrick, right? No shoes, jeans, his shirt, wild hair. The service had already started. And so Bill, listen, Bill starts to walk down the aisle looking for a seat. And the church is completely packed, and he can't find a seat. 
And by now, people are looking a bit uncomfortable. No one's saying anything. You guys know this. You've seen these situations. As Bill gets closer and closer and closer to the pulpit, he realizes there's no seats, so he just sits down right on the carpet. And although this is perfectly acceptable behavior at a college fellowship, this had never happened in this church before. And by now, the people are really uptight. The tension is thick. You know, it's awkward. They're like, what's happening? And about this time, the pastor realized that from the, from the back of the church, a deacon is slowly making his way towards Bill. Now, the deacon's in his 80s, silver, gray hair, and a pocket watch, a godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly, and he walks with a cane, and he starts walking towards the boy. And everyone is saying to themselves, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age and of his background to understand some college kid on the floor? It takes a long time for the man to reach the boy. And the church is utterly silent except for the clicking of the man's cane. And all eyes are focused on him. You can't even hear anyone breathing. The people are thinking, the pastor can't even preach the sermon until the deacon does what he has to do. And now they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor. And with great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Bill and worships with him so he won't be alone. He says, everyone chokes up with emotion. And when the pastor gains control, he says, what I'm about to preach to you, you'll never remember. What you have just seen, you will never forget. And I think that's a great story to just display the grace and the love of God towards sinners. Right? We, we usually want to outcast people. When Jesus says, no, I, I came so that no man should perish, right? No man. And God is no respecter of persons. He sees us all the same, and he loves us all the same. And that, and that love that he has for us is a lot. And so regardless of our background, regardless of what we look like, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we smell like, you know, all the things that we judge each other on, Jesus says, I love you. I died for you. But he also tells us, that it's the sinner who repents. It's not the righteous. And so we need to be careful that when we come here on Sunday mornings, that we don't see ourselves as so righteous that we don't show love towards others. Because it's the righteous who don't need grace. Because we think we don't need it. Right? It's the proud that don't receive grace because we don't think we need it. But it's the humble. It's the one that recognizes himself or herself as the chief of sinners, right? We're talking about Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a majority of the Bible in the New Testament. He says, I am the chief of sinners. He says, I am the least of these. I mean, here's the guy who, if, if anyone were to judge, would to say, this is, you know, the most righteous man that we know. But yet his view of himself was, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus more than anyone. And so with that idea, with, with that view of himself, it saw himself lower than other people, which esteemed and put other people higher than himself, which is love, right? Which is love. It's an unselfish thing. So Jesus goes on. He speaks his parable. Verse 3, he says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, right? Now, none of us own sheep. None of us are shepherds. But in this time, this was, you know, this is what they, this was their occupation. Everyone understood what Jesus was saying here. He says, which of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness 
and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Now, for Hebrews, for the Jews, they were shepherds from like all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? This is what it was ingrained in them. So Jesus used this analogy to speak to them in a clear and precise way. And even then, they still had shepherds. And it's interesting that Jesus would use this, and he would say, which of you having 100? Because 100 sheep was like a good amount to have. Now, bear with me. If I had 100 sheep and I lost one, I'd be like, well, 99 is not bad, right? I'm like, sorry, dude, right? Like, when we go on retreats and we bring like 100 of you, and I come back with 99, I'd be like, that's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Like, that's 99% of you I brought back home. That's a passing grade. So for me, or a shepherd, I'm sure that's a lot of how a lot of them would, would think and feel. But the idea here, again, contextually, this is about a savior. Okay, this isn't really speaking about a real scenario with a shepherd, although we're getting an idea with this analogy. But the, the idea here is that when it comes to Jesus as our savior, the point is, is that he cares about every single one of us. Right? Every single one of us. Even though our world just topped and just hit 8 billion people, it's not like Jesus is running out of love and that it's, you know, well, I only have love for, you know, 5 billion people, you know, or like, you know, it's, it's any less because there's more people in the world. No, he, he cares about every single one of you. And I, th- I think sometimes we think that we get lost in this world and that God doesn't know us, God doesn't care about us, but no, if he wouldn't be God if he didn't know everything about you. He wouldn't be God. But because he's God, he knows everything about you. And because he's a great God, he loves you. Despite knowing everything about you. Right? And he goes after you. And that's the analogy here. You have a lost sheep, right? It walks away. But a good and loving shepherd, a good and loving savior, cares for the one that is left. The 99 are good. They're safe. Okay? They're in their little playpen. But there's one out there who's being dumb, who's lost, doesn't know his way. And he has no way of getting back home. Because he's too weak and he's too dumb, right? And that's the picture of us, right? Like, I have no way of saving myself. You have no way of saving yourself. You're too weak, right? You, you have nothing good in you to save yourself. So it has to be the initiative of the shepherd. It has to be the initiative of, the, of God who comes to save us. And thankfully, we have a God who does that. He goes after the one that is missing from the hundred. It says in verse 5, And when he has found it, speaking of that lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulder and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So Jesus grabs us where we are, and he puts us on his shoulders. A place where he does all the work, right? He does the entirety of the work. He picks us up where we are, wherever he finds us. Wherever he finds us, he picks us up because he loves us and he does the work of carrying us back home. He knows how to get there. He has the strength to do it. And I'm glad he does that because Romans 5, 6 says this, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God didn't die for me when I was righteous. He didn't die for me when I was strong. He didn't die for me when I was godly. He didn't die for me when I was good and perfect. He didn't die for me when I had the ability to save myself. No, no. 
It's the complete opposite. I had nothing in it of myself to save myself. And so he took the initiative to save me. In verse 7, it says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So I think Jesus adds this at the end of this, as well as the end of the second parable in verse 10, that this is an analogy. It's a parable, right? It has a biblical truth behind it, but Jesus also has a couple of it with this important biblical truth, that there has to be repentance. There has to be repentance. There has to be one thing on your part as a human being that you have to do to be saved. Do you know that one thing? What you must do? What is it? Thank you. It's have faith. It is the one thing. There's nothing else. And here's the kicker, guys. You might be thinking, well, isn't that like the opposite of everything you've been saying, like that God does everything? Well, he has. And the faith that you have, it's not a work. Because the faith that we have is a gift from God is given to us. And that faith gives us grace, which is unmerited favor. Now, you might be thinking, well, then why doesn't Jesus say here in the parable, have faith and you'll be saved, right? But no, he says this. He says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So which is it? Do we as people, are we saved by our faith, right? Because that's what Ephesians tells us. You're saved by grace through faith and not of works, right? And the grace that we receive is a gift of God. Or is it repentance, right? Which one is it? What do you guys think? It's both. They're one and the same. They're not two different things, right? They, they both, they, they get coupled together. It's kind of like a coin. You guys know what like a coin is, right? A quarter. What's on one side of the quarter? What's on the other side? Two different sides, right? Still one coin? Yeah? Still one coin? Correct, right? That's kind of how faith and repentance are. They, they work together. They're one and the same. So repentance here, because you'll see this all throughout Scripture, that the one thing that Jesus requires of us is faith. Faith, 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 or, or belief. Same thing. It's, it's a trust in Jesus Christ. But then you'll get into other verses that will say, well, you must do this, and that's repent, of your sins, right? John says that. John the Baptist, you know, the kingdom of God is here. Repent of your sins. Jesus says over and over again, repent of your sins. Well, here's the thing. We need to have a good definition of repentance, a good meaning of repentance. And this is what repentance means, guys. This is what faith means, to trust. This is what repentance means, to change your mind, okay? Faith is to trust, Repentance is to change your mind. Okay? It's not to wash yourselves and make yourselves good and to stop sinning. That's not what repentance means. I think that's what it leads to, but it's not what it means. So we have to trust, and we have to change our minds. So how does this then work? What do we change our minds about when it comes to us as unbelievers? Well, this is it. You change your mind about whatever is inhibiting you from trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That's how they work together. That's how they're one and the same. That for me to trust in Jesus means I have to change my mind in what I once was trusting in. Right? I once trusted something, because we all have faith in something. It's just a matter of do we place it 
upon the right thing. So if I'm repenting, then I'm beginning to trust in the right thing. I'm beginning to believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. That's how they work together. I'm changing my mind on once what I once believed in no longer works, and now I change my mind and I believe in Jesus Christ alone. And when that happens, there's a transformation, right? The sick who has now gone to the doctor is healed. He's no longer sick, right? The sinner who, you know, has now been found by Jesus is no longer considered a sinner but a saint, right? A child of God. You who who once were dead are now alive. And in that instant, it says there's rejoicing in heaven, right? Verse 7, it says, I say to you that likewise there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So in heaven, when someone's saved, Jesus is pretty clear that God rejoices, the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. There's a celebration, right? It's an awesome thing. And here's there's this line that's, that's, that's crossed, that's given, that in heaven there's rejoicing, and on earth there's complaining, right? We see that with the Pharisees here. They're complaining, they're grumbling. But here we see that God cares for every individual person, every name. And he goes on, gives a second parable, and this is a pretty clear one, so I'm not going to expound on it too much. He says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds it. And so the, the, the coin here is a very valuable thing, right? And we need to understand that Christ sees this as valuable too, right? You look at the, the parable of the, the pearl of great price, right? That he sees this of, of such high value because he loves us. And so this coin's of value. So she drops this coin. This isn't like us dropping like a dime, right? Like you drop a dime, you're like, I'm not spending my time to look for that, Right? But this had value. This was up to like a day's wages. And the fact that you only have 10 to begin with points to how much more value it is anyways, right? If I only have 10 and I lose one, well, that's 10% of what I have. Although I don't think that's the point of the parable. It's not a percentage thing. But again, it has value. Christ sees us and sees the value in us. He says in verse 9, And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, Jesus talks about the repentance, to change your mind and what you once were trusting in, and to trust in Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says this. I'll close here. It says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. lost. Right? We all were once lost. And we don't find our way home. Jesus finds us and brings us home. It's a beautiful thing, guys. And it, and, it, and it happens with him. It starts with him. But there is an opportunity. It's almost as if when Jesus comes to pick us up, you have the opportunity to either reject his offer of him picking you up or you can repent and believe in him. And he picks you up and he takes you home of his own accord, of his own strength, and he does all the work. Let's pray, and then what we're going to do is we're going to break out for a few minutes. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you have for us, the fact that you care for us. You know every, every heart in this room. Lord, it says in your word that you even know the hairs of our head. Lord, that you know every single finite detail. 
And Lord, yet you still love us. And so I pray if there's anyone in this room who feels unloved, who feels, you know, just lost in this vast world, Lord, that they would know and understand the kindness and love and the intention that you have for us. Lord, that your intent for coming here was to save us, to redeem us, to bring us back to you. Because that is how you created us and what you created us for. And Lord, help us to find our purpose and our identity in that and nothing else. So we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.